You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. So, question 10. We're going through the Shorter Catechism. This is the question, how did God create man? And the answer given, God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. So we looked at creation prior to this, macro-creation. This is looking at micro-creation and the, the formation of man. After he had created all other creatures... He created mankind. And man was made uniquely with deliberate counsel as the crown of creation. He didn't do this with any other creature. In the solemn counsel of the three sacred and divine persons, the masterpiece of God's creation was designed. Then God said, let us make him man in our image after our likeness. So in every other instance in creating the other creatures, God simply spoke a word. They were brought into being. Let there be light, let there be animals, let there be fish and birds. But for the creation of man, he called a council of the Trinity to construct, as we said, the masterpiece. And in the creation of mankind, God distinguished between male and female. Two genders. Very important in our day. He formed the body of the man of the dust of the ground. He formed the woman's of the rib of the man. And it is interesting, as some of our former theologians have said, her body was made of far more noble material than his. He was made of the dust of the ground, and she was made of man, the rib of the man. What's interesting is the word that we translate made in Genesis 2.22 is actually built So he built, constructed this beautiful woman for the the initial man. And this conjugal relationship was intended for mutual encouragement as well as the propagation of lawful seed, legitimate seed. So this is what the question is getting at. We're going to look at some of these things more specifically, but any comments or questions at this point? Yes, Mary Alice. When uh, earlier you said man was made uh, at the crown of creation. Yep. Now, there's a lot of uh, news stories today about life forms coming to visit us from other planets. That seems to be popular nowadays. Do you comment on that? <laughs> <laughs> UFOs? Pardon? UFOs? Well, extraterrestrial life? Well, I don't... Um, I don't know of any legitimate evidence that I've seen to suggest that there is extraterrestrial life. Um, There's nothing in the Word of God that teaches us there is. Jesus became a man on this planet to redeem this world. So insofar as there's nothing that persuades me to think there's anything out there that I'm not going to. Um, I think this vast universe, which is just immeasurable to mankind, just displays the glory of God. Somebody says, why would he create this massive universe just for this teeny little planet? Well, because it's his glory. 
And actually, I'm not a scientist, as you know, but I've heard that man is actually right smack dab in the middle when it comes to size. Like, there are things massively bigger than him and things incredibly smaller than him. Like in a drop of water, there's millions of microbes. So, I, again, I, that's about as far as I can go with UFOs. I mean... God, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Any other interesting questions? <laughs> that was good, Mary Alice. It's important, especially in our day. But you know, Satan does, in his scheming, he focuses on the nature of the society in which we live. So we don't live in a society that really affirms the occult or you know, the work of the devil or demons, but we do affirm the technological things and extraterrestrials. So, the soul. Mankind is endued uniquely with a rational and immortal soul. God formed the man of dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature, or in some translations, a living soul. Yes. Well, we're just doing a study on the soul, and I have yet to find a definition of what it is, other than looking at it. It looks like it encompasses mind, emotion, and will. What, what is the soul? <laughs> well, it, it does encompass those things the mind, the will, the affections, the conscience. It's a rational, reasonable being. That's your person, made after the image of God, as we'll see. Immediately given by God. Now, there are some who would think that God just kind of created mankind and let them reproduce. And we get our souls from our parents. I don't think scripture teaches that. I think it teaches that God gives the soul immediately with every human being. Because when the dust returns to the ground, the spirit returns to the father who gave it. So the soul... but. This is a mystery, Sue. I mean, how do you actually define? Well, God's never given us a definition. But we understand that it's the person, you, mind, will, affections, conscience. Because when your body decays and laid in the ground, you will still have consciousness. It's that conscious being that is immortal. So what's the difference between the soul and the well, your heart that uses the heart as the center of your emotions and your affections, your desires. So it's part of the soul. It's the core. It's the core of the soul. And when it says that God changes the heart, he's talking about from the inside out, the Holy Spirit renews you. You're still the same person, but you're brand new. It's a new birth. We reason, we're made to think God's thoughts after him. That's why he gives us this capacity to reason. And we're we're endowed with understanding and will and affections and the conscience, which in Proverbs 20 is called the lamp of the Lord. It examines the soul, the inner being of the person. It's the more noble part of man as one Puritan put it, I think it was Watson, it is the sparkling diamond set in a ring of clay. He's not disparaging the body, fearfully and wonderfully made, 
But he's just saying that this soul is the more noble part. What can a man give in return for his soul? It is immortal. It is by God's grace. It is everlasting. And by his power. Its spirituality, its immortality, make it intrinsically valuable as breathed in by God himself. That's why Jesus says, what can a man give in return for his soul? The whole world is not worth one soul. The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it, or the soul, or the person. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, says Jesus, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So again, this idea that the, the, noble, the, um, the soul is the most noble part of man. It is very important. It's incapable of being killed because God sustains it. Now, no soul has being in and of itself. God sustains the soul. But because God sustains the soul, it's incapable of being killed and at the same time incapable of dying. It is immortal. So whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, it's going to be immortal. And that's the reason that those souls in hell uh, live forever is because God with one hand holds them up and with the other hand he punishes them, which is tragic. Its essence, to answer Sue's question, is spiritual. That's the essence of the soul. So that the soul does not depend on the body, but the body depends upon the soul. When God said, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, Adam didn't die in many ways right away, but his soul died. He lost spiritual life. He lost eternal life. But he did not lose physical life. Spiritually dead. So spiritually blind, in darkness. So a soul is blind, not. Well, the scripture uses the language of death spiritually. So the soul doesn't go out of existence, right? There, you're still a person. You still have thoughts, conscience. But spiritually, you're incapable of appreciating the beauty of God, the creation of God, you have no desire for things spiritual or eternal. Your soul is, for all intents and purposes, spiritually dead. Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. So it can't die in terms of going out of existence. It can't be extinguished. But it can be spiritually dead, which is what happens to fallen man. Uh, so if all men are fallen, you are born Absolutely. We are born that way. To quote some pop singer, I don't know. Right? We are born that way. Carolyn? Wonderful passage, too, is in Ezekiel 36, where you know, God says, I will replace your heart with mm. stone. Yes. So you think of a stone, it's impermeable right. Right, with a heart of flesh. That's right. So there's the spiritual picture. Right. Hard as rock, impenetrable, like you said, and there has to be this miracle of grace, this exchange of a heart of stone for a heart of flesh. Um, so, in other words, there is this spirituality of the soul, which, because of God's power, is incapable of being killed, but it is spiritually dead. 
Sue. No, I'm just laughing. I'm reading that. It's incapable of being killed. But at the same time, incapable of dying. Yeah. Yeah. You can't kill it. You can't kill it and it can't die because God holds it up. Was there a hand back there? There's a creation. It's created. There, it's not eternal past, no. Now, let me ask you this. When is the soul conception? Conception. Yep. So this is what is so very vile about abortion. Right. Yep, it's a person from the moment of conception. Right. Jonathan? I've heard a lot of times in the past week, citations of Genesis 2-7 to say that life begins not at conception, but at the first breath. Which seems like a bizarre argument because Adam was never he was never conceived in a room that, according to ordinary generation as everyone after him. Right. Special, he was specially created, so we can't then draw parallels to say that it's not until you take your first breath that you have your soul. That's right. Yeah, that's good. You're right. He has this unique experience. Both he and Eve um, we're not given any details about Eve, but we're given the details about him breathing life into Adam. And you're right. He was unique. There's that age-old question, did Adam have a belly button? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah. So personhood. God is not an it. God is not a force. God is not a non-personal being. He is personal, which is remarkable. Three persons in perfect, perpetual union. And so he created man as a person capable of having fellowship with himself, with God. That's the reason. And we we can't comprehend God. He's infinite. But we can apprehend him. We can know him. And to know him is eternal life. Our fellowship, said John, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That fellowship is all important. It's that fellowship that enables us to enjoy an eternity of blessedness. And so this gift of personhood, we are persons, is one of the greatest blessings bestowed by a personal creator. or made after his image. In the one God are three distinct persons, as we said, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> They're one essence, three persons. Mystery, can't explain it. They enjoy perfect, eternal, unchangeable fellowship from all eternity. So there's an answer. There's the eternity past, if you can use that kind of language. Eternity is not affected by time, but eternity past, eternity future, he is, was, and is to come. And that's this wonderful fellowship that the three persons enjoy. And so man reflects God in being personal and enjoying fellowship with God and fellow humans. Jesus says, I know, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And as you know, in scripture, that word know is often used in terms of love. Adam knew Eve, and she conceived. There's this idea of that Jesus loves his own, and his own love him. And there's this intimate knowledge because two persons having a relationship. 
God created mankind to be characterized by families as well, because we are by nature social beings. What's interesting, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. So this idea that the Trinity, that, that Trinitarian idea informs the human family. I mean, you, this is not doctrine. This is pure speculation. But you can go so far as to say, okay, God the Father, the human Father, God the Son, the human Mother, and God the Holy Spirit, the human child, the Spirit proceeding from both. I mean, it's a speculative analogy, but there's this idea of family, that the Trinity is, takes on the character of a family, and that's why God puts us into families. All families of the earth and heaven share a common divine paternity in God the Father. I'm not arguing for the fatherhood of God that the liberals argue for. God is the father only of those who trust in Jesus Christ. But this general idea of the family nature is uh, common to all mankind. I hope that's clear. Any questions on personhood? Okay. Well, in God's image, he made male and female. He created man in his own image. And therefore, man is unique among the creatures of the earth. Now, I'm not sure he's unique among all creatures. The angels themselves reflect the image of God in their rational and immortal character. But man was appointed as God's vicegerent to rule in his name. And he was created in God's image formally, socially, judicially, and ethically. Four different ways, all of them. United in man. He's in God's image formally in that he stands upright with dignity and superiority. We have superiority over the creatures. We're given dominion to rule over them. We're not on the same level. He is in God's image socially in that he enjoys the society of his spouse, his family, his friends. Like we said, the Trinitarian nature. We are social beings. We haven't lost that. We're in God's image judicially in that we exercise dominion over the creatures. We were his vicegerent. We were the king of the earth. Sub-king. Vassal king. And we're in God's image ethically in that we were originally created with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And this is where the question in the Shorter Catechism focuses. On the ethical. Because it's the ethical aspect that we lost in Adam and that is restored in Christ. We still have the formal, we still stand upright with dignity, we still have the social, we still have the judicial, ethical. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So when we're recreated in the image of Christ by the new birth, it's righteousness and holiness and knowledge, as we'll see, that's restored. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It's this spiritual understanding. It's the ability to see things that are eternal, to look beyond the created universe. That's what Adam had at the beginning, as we'll see. Oops, sorry. Any questions on in his image? Okay. We're going to look at each one of these uh, ethical aspects in particular. Okay. Knowledge. We're originally created with knowledge. Adam did not know all things, but he did know everything he was supposed to know. 
His spiritual knowledge irradiated his soul. That was extinguished by sin. That spiritual knowledge, spiritual understanding. He loved the truth. Now we suppress the truth in unrighteousness by nature. Man knew his God, his nature, and perfections, and the Trinity. He knew God savingly. Of course, saving is an anachronism because he didn't need to be saved in his pristine state. But he knew God's single prohibition, don't eat of that tree, and he had the moral law written upon his heart. They show, Paul says, that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. So even in his fallen state, mankind has this work of the law written on his heart. Adam had that law and had the power to fulfill it. And this knowledge was concreated with him. This is important because other, other teachers, not in the Reformed tradition, but other teachers, Roman Catholic being one of them, teach that God created man and then sort of as an extra added gift plopped on him the image, gave him knowledge, gave him righteousness, gave him holiness so that it's an extra act of creation. And when man fell, he lost the extra act of creation, but kept his original so that there is something, a spark of good. You can do something for your salvation. You can contribute. We say no. He was concreated, created with this kind of knowledge. And when he sinned, he fell and he has nothing good in him. Big difference. God put the creatures under his rule. Equipped man with knowledge to exercise dominion, and he was the first prophet whom God appointed to declare his will and to make known his glory. So where the first Adam failed, he failed as a prophet. The second Adam succeeded in making known the truth of God. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus is the great prophet, and he came to reveal the Father Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. There is in those two verses a sense of finality that we cannot escape. That God revealed himself supremely, fully, finally in his son. Which is, again, a conversation we had, I think, a week or two ago. One of the reasons why we believe there's no need for any special revelation now. We have it all in Jesus Christ. Why would we need anything more? And to say that we need something more would be to disparage the Son of God. Knowledge. Any questions on knowledge? Um, you mentioned Romans 1, that they suppress the truth of God. Like you said, like they don't know that unbelievers are spiritually Right. Good question. Yeah. They, <clears throat> there is enough revelation in the natural world to leave man inexcusable. He knows there's a God, but he will suppress that, and he cannot possibly see the beauty of God. All he can see is that God is a revengeful judge, and he trembles. So Paul in Romans 1 can say, you know, 
God has revealed himself, his eternity, his goodness, his divinity. And it leaves man inexcusable because we should know him. But because we're spiritually dead, darkness, spiritually blind, we have to have the work of the Holy Spirit to begin to see who he really is as a saving and gracious God. So, yeah, it's a great question. Um, Man does not want to know God. Anybody who says they want to go to heaven and they're not a believer, that's the last place they'd want to be. They have no idea what they're saying. Anybody who goes to hell, it's because they choose to go to hell. They don't love God. They don't know God. They refuse to submit to God. And therefore, God gives them over to themselves, their own desires. So somebody says, oh, yeah, I've been living my life in sin, and I don't see any judgment. Everything continues as it was. And the sad thing is, they don't understand that is the judgment. He gives them over to their own desires without any restraining grace. We see it happening in our society today. He's withdrawing these restraints. And man suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, being inexcusable because there's plenty of revelation, is plunging headlong into uh, perdition. Don? Yeah, that's a revelation. How do you deal with people like uh, Muslims that say they get a vision, a clear vision that changes their life? Right. Yeah, I think, you know, God can providentially use things to nudge them toward the scriptures, but there is no way that anybody will know Jesus Christ apart from God's special revelation. There has to be the revelation of God pointing to his son. The only place we can learn about Jesus is in the scriptures. Now, can God awaken somebody with a dream and convict them? The spirit convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment? Of course. Maybe the person heard about Jesus through some traveler. Who knows? Um, I remember hearing, reading about a person on a bus, and I gave the illustration one time, and he had a scrap of the Bible, just a scrap, and it talked about, I think, the Son of Man and the Bread of Life, and that caused him to search and to find someone who knew about this man called the Bread of Life. You know. But again, there is no way anybody can know Jesus apart from Scripture or someone preaching. Romans 10, how are they going to know without someone preaching? They won't. It doesn't matter how closely you follow the light of nature or the moral law or the religion that you profess. If you don't trust in Jesus Christ who is revealed in the Scriptures, you cannot be saved. Period. Righteousness, we were endowed with righteousness, a moral excellence which was perfect conformity to the will of God. God made man upright, righteous, but they have sought out many schemes. And he was able and willing to choose what is just and right and true. But be, and because of Adam's original righteousness, he was fully capable of fulfilling the law of God. Every detail. That was his desire. There was no bondage. He was free to perform and to do what he was chosen or what he was created to do and chosen to do. So no one could find fault in Adam. He was righteous, upright, in line with his creator's will. He came from his maker's hands in a perfect reflection of the divine righteousness. Perfect. We see that in Jesus. 
a perfect reflection and perfect inherently righteous. Every inclination of his heart was to obey God's commandment and his conscience was clear. Contrast that with what he says at the beginning of Genesis 6 regarding that generation before the flood. Every inclination of the heart was evil continually. What a difference. So where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded in perfectly fulfilling the law of God. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. John the Baptist was like, I, I should be baptized by you, and you baptize me? Fulfilling all righteousness. He had to identify with his people. One trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And that righteousness, the gospel says, is imputed to you and me. You're clothed in this alien righteousness, this righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at you as a believer, he sees Christ. What's amazing to me is he loves you and me with the same love that he loves Jesus Christ. That's staggering. How could that be? Filthy wretches. This holy, blameless, innocent, unstained Son of God. But He loves us as He loves His Son. And loves us in His Son. Holiness. We are endowed with holiness. The splendor of sacred purity. No spot. No blemish. All the affections. All the desires. All the imaginations were pure and holy. What will it be like to live in a world without sin? That you won't struggle with sin every single moment of every day. Adam loved what God loves and hated what God hates. There was no irregularity. He was holy. There was no corruption in his being, no perverseness of his heart, no indisposedness to loving God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And that's what he did. He was holy. He delighted in God with all of his heart, esteemed him as his chief end and primary joy. That does not happen in fallen man, sadly. There was in Adam nothing impure, nothing imperfect, no inclination to anything but holiness. And where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded in loving God fully and perfectly and constantly. Those those nights where he would spend the entire evening, the whole night praying in fellowship with his father. He delighted in it. Let the child to be born, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. I believe that was the angel to Mary. Peter said, we have believed and have come to know that you are the holy one of God. Jesus is holy. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. Any questions on knowledge, righteousness, or holiness? Okay. Oh, Mary Alice? Your statement a little higher up, the son of Adam, uh, the, well, I can't see him so far back. But anyway, talking about Adam being created, perfect, holy, how do we sin? 
<laughs> You're full of good questions today. I don't know. I do know this. If that's the case, then once restored, you know, any man who's been restored and has the image of Christ in him, what's to keep him from sitting in the same similitude? Well, we're, we're, what, what did Adam, we're not confirmed. We're not confirmed in our holiness yet. So in this particular stage, we can choose the good or choose the evil as believers. As unbelievers, we can only choose the evil. And you ask the question, where did it come from in Adam, who was holy? Back it up. Where did it come from in Lucifer, who was holy? I don't know, but the only way I can describe it is God, who is immutable, cannot sin, and the creatures that he made are mutable, subject to change. So in some mysterious way, in his decree, he ordained that these mutable creatures would change from holiness to unholiness. I think that's about as far as we can go. I don't know of any other explanation other than that. Carolyn? I was, I was actually thinking the same thing with the phrase that Adam had no inclination, right. nothing, to anything but holiness. And then I was backing that up like you did. I thought, well, no, it came from outside of him. It was temptation. So it wasn't an inner desire, but Satan came. Tempted. And I thought, wow, that is such a uh, you know, lesson for us that you know, Satan can twist so easily. Yeah. And even God's word, that's what he did. Yeah. He, he spoke untruth, subtle. Right. And, you know, we really died. Um, and his strategy hasn't changed. No, it's the same thing. It's, can all be so easily tempted. That's right. Which is why we need to be people of the book. All this clamoring after experience and experientialism, we need to be people of the word. Yes. You know? And of course, there's, there's a wonderful experience being a person of the word. And God uses that to illumine our minds and to warm our hearts. But it's his word and spirit. That's the important thing in the Christian life. But as you said, I go back up. Okay, Adam was tempted from outside. Satan, where did it come from? Yeah. I don't know. Only God knows that. But he was mutable. He was subject to change, and he changed. Oh, is there another hand? I'm sorry. I was just going to say what you just said. It's interesting that Adam was subject in some degree to temptation. Yeah. And he succumbed to it. Right. Uh, interesting that Jesus went into the wilderness and was also tempted, but he resisted the temptation because of his righteousness. And, and, and it's kind of, that, that's the difference between Yeah, and Jesus, what did he do? He used the word, right? Yes. As Carolyn said, Satan will twist and distort the word to his own advantage, and Adam failed as the prophet to uphold God's word. And uh, Jesus came as the ultimate prophet, and he declared God's word and resisted all temptation. Great example. Dominion, he was created with dominion over the creatures. As the vicegerent, he ruled over everything on earth. He had a right to dispose of the creatures according to his pleasure. 
It was not absolute. His dominion was not unlimited. He was dependent upon God. And as the royal high priest of God's sanctuary, Adam was tasked with guarding the sacred precinct from evil. Eden. He had to guard it. Keep it. Make it fruitful. Guard it. Keep it holy. You may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now that sacramental tree symbolized man's duty to exercise judicial discernment in judging evil. Judicial discernment, that's what a king does when he decides cases, or what a judge does when it comes before him and he renders a decision. Judicial discernment. Adam was to judge evil as the royal high priest. How do I know this? Well, Solomon prayed when he became king, give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern good and evil. So he governs by discerning good and evil. That's what he's saying. Remember the woman that came to him? My Lord, the king is like the angel of God, came to David, like the angel of God to discern good and evil. So the king's task was to rightly discern good and evil. That's a judicial task, according to these texts. So when we go back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, many people interpret that saying, well, somehow when he ate of that tree, he gained some sort of knowledge. No. Why do I say that? Because God says later, he's become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Well, God doesn't embrace evil. What does God do? He discerns between good and evil. So Adam was appointed to work the garden, guard the sanctuary from any unholy intruder. And the one tree was reserved for God. He was a king, but a servant king. He obeys the Lord. And he was at that tree when he was tempted to discern between good and evil. He was to affirm the truth of God. Resist the temptation of Satan, judge the unholy intruder, and cast him out. And if he would not have eaten of that tree and resisted the temptation, that's what would have happened. He didn't do that. He called evil good and good evil. He affirmed the word of the devil, and he disobeyed the word of God. He permitted the temptation God did. Adam called good evil and evil good, and he denied God and believed Satan. He failed in his task as the royal high priest. He allowed the unholy intruder to come in and to desecrate the holy sanctuary. What does Jesus do? He discerns between good and evil. He goes into the sanctuary, casts out the evil, purges it from corruption, and ultimately he affirms the word of God, denies the word of Satan, and exercises judicial discernment as the king and head of his church. Any questions on that one? That's a Meredith Klein understanding of the probation tree, and I think he's right. Marriage. God called creation good six times, and one time very good, but the only thing he said was not good was the absence of woman, the glory of man, according to Paul. 
There were angels above, animals below, but no equal for Adam, so he ordained marriage for companionship and family and mutual help and encouragement. It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him and the created woman. No other creature was fit for or suitable for providing Adam with human companionship. He had various creatures all around him. There was no equal, no complement. So the woman would be a perfect complement to him since by himself Adam could not be happy or fruitful. He needed the woman. Once he did this, he prayed the animals before Adam in token of his lordship and he named all of them. Naming is the prerogative of one who exercises authority. God named the day. He named the night, heaven, earth. Naming is an authoritative act, which is why parents name their children. It's authority, parental authority. Nobody can usurp that. That's God-given authority to the parents. And it's natural for God's image bearer to imitate his activity and name all the animals. Any questions on marriage? How are we doing? Well, let me go quickly. I'd rather get to the last one. Well, no, I guess this is the last one. Man was created as a covenant being and in covenant with God. It was not as if God created man, then later established a covenant with him. Okay, I've made this man. Now let's have a covenant between us. No, he created him as a covenant being. A fiat is an authoritative declaration or decree from a king. Fiat. You just say something and it's law. That's what a fiat is. The divine fiats in the week of creation were covenantal words. What do I mean by that? God said, let there be light. There was light. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Those were fiats, right? Let there be light. An authoritative declaration by the king. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day, covenant, and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken. He describes the creation of sun, moon, stars, light, day as covenant. So when he declares something, it's a covenantal act. Whoops. When he created man, it was covenantal. He was created in covenant with God, and the indicative, he was in God's image as a covenant being, had the force of an imperative. You are to be like God. Because you're in my image, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So we are to structure our time according to the way that God structured his work. We're made in his image. The Sabbath was a sign of the covenant and served to commemorate God's creative acts. Old Testament, seventh day, creation. New Testament, first day, new creation. It is a visible testimony to his lordship. And God's rest at the completion was his divine satisfaction and the enthronement of the king of kings. This gets back to Nate's question last week. It's not that God stopped working. It's that he was enthroned took complete complacency in what he had made. So our Sabbath keeping, insofar as we keep the Lord's day and observe it and enjoy it, it's a visible, public, believing confession that he is Lord. Why on earth would you waste 
a seventh of your life doing nothing but worship, fellowship, and rest? Well, because he's my Lord, and it's devoted to him. And Satan, with his instruments, will much labor to blot out the glory and even the memory of the Sabbath to bring in, as they say, all irreligion and impiety. It's happened. Man and Adam would undergo the probation as a corporate whole. The principle of representation, and we'll look at that later at the fall. So any questions at this point? Okay? Well, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for creating us in your image. You have blessed us immeasurably with creation, but even more so in redemption through Christ Jesus and the fact that you've recreated us in his image. And we pray that as we enter into worship, this wonderful workplace of recreating grace, that you would do that and help us to conform ourselves more closely to Jesus himself, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.